Good morning. How y'all doing? <clears throat> so, um, my voice is a little uh, raspy this morning. Um, yesterday, uh, we celebrated my wife's birthday and a good friend, uh, and we went karaoke. And so, I had a good time. <laughs> uh, I gave it all I had. But we are here this morning celebrating, uh, doing our own version of karaoke as we sing to God. And uh, I'm grateful to be here and continue to uh, be able to share God's word with you guys. I'm going to be reading <clears throat> uh, the version of the Lord's Prayer from Luke, uh, but I'm going to be pulling from Matthew's version as well. And you know, when I think about the Lord's Prayer... Um, it is such a deeply formative prayer. Uh, and I feel like there's so much to extract from it uh, that to think about the prayer as a whole and to give somewhat of a summary, uh, it probably could happen. Uh, someone probably better skilled than I am could come up here and give you guys a, 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 a very uh, keen overview of the prayer. But I wanted to do something slightly different. Uh, I didn't ask, ask for permission, so maybe I'll just ask for forgiveness later. Uh, but I am going to just look at the first three words of that prayer. Uh, we're going to look at, uh, or the first four words, our Father in heaven. Uh, because I think there's something deeply important about that those words that in a sense prepare us to really receive what the whole of the prayer is trying to offer us. So I'll read from Luke <clears throat> Uh, 11, 1 through 13, and then again, as I said, I'll, I'll pull some things from uh, Matthew's version. He was praying in a certain place, this is Jesus, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, uh, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we, are, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. I'm reading from the CSB version, uh, by the way. And do not bring us into temptation. He also said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer them. Then he will answer from inside and say, do not bother me. <laughs> Sounds like New York. Uh, the, the, the door is already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up and give you anything. But I can talk to you from behind the door. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because his friend's shameless boldness he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you <clears throat> that it will be given to you. Uh, so I say to you and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks the door will be opened. What father among you if his son asks for a fish will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will your heavenly Father give you, uh, will give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask for it? You know, <clears throat> prayer is such an interesting thing. Um, and I think that for me over the course of my life, I, I, I think I might have mentioned this early uh, when I first preached here, but uh, I kind of grew up nominally Catholic. You kind of, you know, my parents are from the Caribbean, they're immigrants, and so Catholicism was such a, a big deal. Uh, but it was a big deal, you know, because it was kind of part of the culture, but not uh, big enough for it to actually influence the decisions that we made and the way that we lived. And, and I, as, I looked, as I looked at these words and even the words uh, from Matthew where it says, Our Father in heaven, I thought about this and I said to myself, man, I pray this prayer, I have prayed this prayer millions of times. These words are so familiar to me, but I, I don't think that I had ever stopped to reflect on the words. That maybe the words became too familiar to me. That in a sense, the life of the, these words had been extracted from them. And, and I think almost all of us in this room are certain that prayer is important. We understand the importance of prayer. The challenge is that we're not aware of its vitality. That while it's true that prayer is important, we are, we're not aware of its vitality because prayer is not simply important, it's vital. And most people define prayer as talking to God. And while that's broadly true, I think it doesn't capture the essence of what it's meant to do to us, those who pray. That talking to God isn't simply just the way that we should define prayer. Prayer is calling on the name of the Lord in the deepest sense. We call on the character of God to be present with us. The nature of who God is to be active and present in our circumstances. You know, I had been, uh, you know, prior to moving to Atlanta, I... I had been pastoring for about 15 years, a few years in other churches, and then about 11 years uh, in the church that my wife and I started back in New York City. And in all my years of schooling and learning and pastoral training, I've never learned more about God and more about the nature of being in communication and present with God than watching my mom. <clears throat> like, no class, no book, uh, no seminary class uh, had taught me more than just observing the way that my mom engaged uh, with God before she passed. My mom didn't just pray in the evenings. She didn't just pray in the mornings. She didn't just pray before we ate food. It seemed like she had an open communication with God, kind of like an open thread with the Lord. <clears throat> but in the moments that it was clear that she was pray praying, uh, she would hit the floor and sometimes on her knees and other times on her face. And she would be there for a while, it seemed. Or felt like hours to me, at least. Praying and crying out to God. But I'll never forget the moments when I used to catch the end of her times in prayer. She would slowly catch her breath. She would slowly get up from her knees. And it felt as, y'all, this is the way I experienced it, it felt as though she emerged a different person. That the person that went down on their knees and spent hours in prayer and then after emerged, it felt like it was a slightly different person that came up 
And in the moments when that person that, she, that had emerged faded, she would just do it again. And you see, what I admire most about people that have seemingly have an inspiring prayer life is not their technique. It's not what they say. It's not how polished it seems. What I admire most about people that seemingly have a vibrant prayer life, again, it's not the technique. It's their hunger. It's their hunger to want to come back to God over and over and over again. You see, church, what part of this prayer is offering us, particularly the first few words of this prayer is offering us, is that we want to go into our moments of prayer in order to emerge a different person. That going into prayer calls us to be with God in such a way that the moment we step out of that particular moment of prayer, we, we emerge a different person. You know, part of what Jesus shows us in these first few words of the prayer is that being with a is that we are being present with a compassionate and embracing God. And, and I want to do this very simply. I just want to look at the, the main words of this opening prayer. Our Father in heaven. I want to start with the first word, first word, our. The very first word here recorded in what seems to be the only prayer that Jesus instructs on prayer is our. Our. And church, this is not a mistake. This was deeply intentional by Jesus. Why? Because right from the jump, Jesus is saying that prayer is meant to confront us. When Jesus opens this prayer here, with the word our, he is saying that it is meant to confront us because by opening the prayer with our, Jesus is confronting and disrupting our individualism. Our, our need, our hunger, and our desire to live independently from one another and to exist in this hyper-individualistic culture, Jesus is challenging us when he simply says our. This opening word is a forceful reminder that no one person has a monopoly on God. That we belong to a body whose head is Jesus. See, I love this because what Jesus is doing is, is he's helping us to see the difference between personal and private. Jesus invites us to have a relationship with Jesus that will impact our personal lives, no doubt. Jesus will challenge the way that we think. He will challenge the way that I live. He will challenge the way that I engage with work, the way that I see the world, the way that I live in my marriage, the way that I parent. Jesus will challenge all of those things, but I will not live out that faith, that practice, that worldview in private. The relationship with Jesus is always in community and in relationship with others. Now, if you're in the building and you're in the habit of praying, my God, my Savior, my Lord, <laughs> you gave your life for me, it doesn't mean that you're praying the wrong way or that you're living a life opposed to God. <clears throat> but at least it is challenging us to consider and examine the way that we view ourselves within the body of Christ and within the world that we live in, that it might look differently uh, than the way that we are living currently. 
And I want us to see that when, when you pray our, it says something about the radical nature of reconciliation. That our tendency oftentimes is to live separate from one another. But when we pray our Father, at least when we use this word our as Jesus uses it in the Matthew version. It is inviting us to see the radical nature of how we are to live reconciled to one another. It says something about the powerful nature of God's desire for unity. Because when we pray our, it reminds us that our Father has a room at a table. That everyone's invited to. And we don't get to determine who sits at that table. God does. This is God's table in God's house, in God's room. And he has sent out the invitation. And we don't get to determine who sits there. God does. We don't get to determine who comes in and who stays out. We simply invite people to the table. See, what unites us ultimately is not what we agree on but that God is our Father and that he invites us to be his children through Christ. Look, one of the greatest indicators, I've learned this over the course of my life and my relationships, one of the greatest indicators uh, that I'm not praying as Jesus has instructed me, that I'm not praying as Jesus has invited me to use this word our and the sentiment that sits behind it is when I'm unwilling to learn from somebody who thinks differently than me. When I'm unwilling to learn from people who have historically been on the other side of the way that I've lived and the decisions that I've made, whether that be religious difference, political difference, societal difference, uh, socioeconomic difference, the, the indicator that I am not praying our as Jesus has is when I'm unwilling to learn from others. Again, be it political difference, be it socioeconomic difference, being religious difference, being tradition difference. When I'm unwilling to learn from someone, when I believe that I cannot learn something from someone else, then it's an indicator oftentimes that I am not praying as Jesus has invited me to pray here by the use of his word, our. This is why I think the Christian tradition our faith as we follow Jesus often invites us to shatter barriers, not flatten identities. <laughs> You've heard me say this before even as we talked about uh, the, the prodigal son. Not to flatten out identities because we are very different from one another. <laughs> and being able to highlight those differences are very important to our connection and intimacy to both God and to one another. But when we break down those barriers for, for, uh, 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 in our differences, the invitation is breaking down those barriers so that we learn how to live together with our differences. Because what unites us is God as our Father. You know, something significant happens in the resurrection of Jesus that I want to highlight. When Jesus resurrects, Mary Magdalene was the first on the scene. And as Mary Magdalene comes and witnesses the resurrected Jesus, she notices, in fact, that Jesus was raised from the dead and she confused him with the gardener. But when she hears that it is Jesus, she calls out to him and she says, teacher. And the very first words out of the mouth of the risen Jesus are found in John chapter 20, verse 17. And here's what Jesus says, the very first words after resurrection. He says, Mary, do not cling to me, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father 
and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus sends Mary, a woman which was in and of itself a radical invitation for first century Palestine. Jesus sends Mary with an urgent message for her and the disciples. He essentially says, my life, my death, and my resurrection is establishing a new kind of relationship. A new family and new identities. What was once only mine, now through me, is also yours. Go tell my disciples the news. You see, what, what was exclusively Jesus' privilege, because of his life and his, his death and his resurrection, he invites others to enjoy the intimacy of relationship that he has with God the Father, being the first recorded words of Jesus after his resurrection. This is making a bold, bold statement. It says that the sole mission of Jesus was to extend to us a privilege that belonged only to him. The privilege of being children of God. That from the very beginning, Jesus' sole mission, the heart, the heart of what he came to do, was to extend to us the opportunity to pray hour <laughs> that this privilege of being God's son is now something that he invites us into Jesus came to establish a way for intimacy unlike anything we've seen before the heart of Jesus wasn't simply to perform some kind of religious right but to make it possible for God to adopt us as his daughters and his sons this isn't a stale ritual, but a deeply vibrant intimacy of relationship with God that we would experience closeness with God like never before together. That was the sole invitation of Jesus. The beauty of this little word, our is that it takes our hearts and it places it in our hands so that we can see it. Praying this little word brings to mind that the people that we would have, that we've been excluding from the table of God, the table that you're invited to, it puts it all into view. I love the way one of my friends put it a few years ago as we reflected on this passage. She said, when you look up in prayer, do you see a father? And when you look around in prayer, do you see your sisters and brothers? When you look up in prayer, do you see a father? When you look around in prayer, do you see siblings? But the second word <clears throat> in this opening prayer is pretty significant in and of itself. Father. So we've dealt with the challenges and the invitation of the first word, our, but now I want to consider the second word, Father. Just in the Old Testament alone, there are 72, 72 names for God and more in the New Testament. But all throughout the gospel stories or the historical accounts of Jesus, Jesus seems to call God only one thing, Father. Father, I thank you that you've always heard me. Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to your children. Father, protect them by the power of your name. Father, I want 
those who you have given me to be where I am. See, the context of Jesus giving this prayer uh, to the disciples has always felt a little strange to me. <clears throat> it's not in the Matthew version, uh, but in Luke's account of this moment, the disciples asked to be taught how to, how to pray. And their reference point, as we read, was, well, this is what John the Baptist did with his boys or his disciples. Um, the context felt a little strange even as I read that, that the disciples would ask Jesus, hey, teach us how to pray. Now, it's not strange to a first century Palestine custom when you had a rabbi or a teacher, the disciples would follow them closely, in fact, and they would ask them to teach them and break things down for them. But, but that's not what felt strange to me. What felt strange to me is that these disciples were Jewish men. And from childhood, they had been learning and memorizing what we know to be the Old Testament or the Tanakh. From, from childhood, they had spent times and years memorizing, not simply learning, but memorizing so that it would sink deeply into them, the Old Testament. The largest collection of writings in the Old Testament were the Psalms. So if they were memorizing and, and, and uh, kind of learning the Old Testament, they they. They, they were processing and memorizing the largest uh, uh, collection of writings in the Old Testament, which were the Psalms. The, the book of Psalms is, in fact, not only a book of songs, but a book of prayers. Because art really is a form of prayer. If they had been learning and memorizing the book of songs, why don't they know how to pray? Why are they asking Jesus to teach them how to pray? It's also important to make the note that, that at this point, the disciples had already been walking with Jesus for about three years. And after watching Jesus' life for that length of time, with that kind of closeness, they probably thought to themselves, I get, they probably thought to themselves as they watched Jesus' life over the course of their three years, they probably thought to themselves, yo, what is he doing? Right? Like, what is he doing? How is Jesus praying? Because I've been praying and learning and memorizing prayers forever, and my life don't look like his. So, what's he drinking? You know, what kind of, what kind of chai latte is he drinking? What kind of prayers is he praying? Because I want to pray those prayers. You see, what God is saying here is that prayer is not about technique, though they knew that. They had technique. They had been learning technique their entire lives. They had been memorizing scripture their entire lives. They had been memorizing prayers their, enti their entire lives. What God is saying here as he invites us to understand this very simple word of Father is, yo, prayer is not about technique. It's about a hunger for the very company and presence of God, sitting in his presence, being honest and vulnerable in his presence, listening to him in his presence, and coming back to his presence whenever you wandered away from him. When Jesus says, Father, and the, prayer, and the disciples are like, yo, teach us how to pray, but you've You've been practicing the technique of prayer. You've been memorizing prayers your entire life. You must have saw that, that the way Jesus lived his life 
And the fruits that were coming out of his life and his works and his presence were like, yo, he's praying different. He's praying very different. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray like you do. It, don't teach us technique. Teach us whatever it is that you've got sitting at the bottom and at the center of those prayers that's making you live the way that you do. What Jesus is saying here, when he says God is not only his father but our father, he's saying that prayer is about intimacy. But I am aware that for some of us, intimacy is not what we think when we think about father. <clears throat> not, not immediately, not initially at least. For some of us, father means hurt. It means wounds, abuse, neglect, absence, indifference. And those perceptions of Father inevitably shape the way that we see God as our Father. You know, several years ago, Anna and I uh, joined uh, what was a year-long uh, group therapy program for pastors. Um, and it was with a uh, well-known pastor back in New York City. Uh, who focused on the relationship between emotional health and spiritual growth. And um, one of the things that we did in that group therapy was working on something called, for those of you that are social workers, you might be familiar with this, but something called the genogram, which is essentially just an uh, in-depth look on your family tree, right? Uh, but, but one of the interesting things about working through your genogram is uh, you're not just making connections relationally, but you're making connections thematically. Like what are, some of the th what are some of the themes that have run throughout the course of your family? Things like uh, abuse or things like unfaithfulness or things like addiction or maybe some of the more, you know, subtle things that have run through the course of your family. Like uh, you come from a long line of people pleasers or maybe you come... Uh, from a long line of abusers or things that feel a, a bit more intangible. And so we worked through some of that family tree stuff and we discovered some things about ourselves that we didn't know was living in our bones. And, and you know, one of the things that uh, uh, the, the pastor of that group therapy uh, often says is that um, uh, Jesus may live in your heart, but your grandpa lives in your bones. And that it often takes a year of, uh, that it often takes a lifetime of walking with Jesus for the Jesus that lives in your hearts to make his way into your bones. Which is what I love about the, uh, which is what I love and hate about the spiritual, emotional, social journey that we're all on, right? That you may have been saved by Jesus for 20 years now, but you still kind of deal with some things and you're trying to wonder why Jesus hasn't done anything about that yet. Well, because... We're complex and we're multidimensional. But anyways, I, I started individual therapy not too long after we were done with that group therapy. And, you know, one of the toughest sessions I had, I realized uh, some of the impacts of my father. Now, disclaimer here, my father uh, is fantastic. I love my father. I consider him to be a hero. Uh, he was present uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, he made a lot of mistakes, um, and I, th I think particularly as an immigrant coming from another country, he worked very hard 
Uh, and those were one of the things that made me so proud of him and one of the things that made me love him so much. But it was also some of the things that kept him from being more present in ways that I wanted him to. Uh, and I realized a lot of things uh, about my dad, particularly in that, in that particular uh, therapy session. And, and I particularly remember that as the therapist was probing and kind of poking holes in my dad, I became really defensive. Uh, and I started to realize that I didn't want her uh, to tear down the image that I had about my dad. I had a hard time really acknowledging uh, some, of the, some of the ways my dad did not meet my needs uh, because I had held up the ways that, he, uh, that I honored him and loved him or whatever. And so one of the things that I learned about myself and about the family I come from is that we come from a long line of people pleasers. And uh, <laughs> I wish I would have realized this before I became a pastor. Uh, uh, because it made leadership really challenging. But I've needed, I've needed God to show me that fathers can be affectionate. And while my dad was present and affectionate in some ways, he wasn't in many other ways. And I've, I've needed God over the course of my life to show me that fathers can be affectionate, that fathers can be loving, then that we can be gentle, that, that fathers can be patient and creative in the ways that they show love. Um, and it's been such a point of, of, of growth for me, uh, especially when I became a father. And if any of y'all follow me on Instagram, you will quickly know how much I love my wife and my kids. But that's been... A, that's been a learning curve for me because I didn't always think that fathers could be affectionate or gentle or patient in this way because it wasn't something that was deeply modeled for me. And I, I, I remember thinking that I would project that onto God. And so I've needed God to show me how not to project what I saw or didn't see onto him. See, when Jesus teaches us to pray by calling God our Father, Jesus is inviting us into his shoes. When we see the life of Jesus, what do we see? What does he invite us to? What do we experience with him? The life of Jesus invites us to see someone who cares and is gentle and concerned with our hearts, with our wounds, and with our baggages, whatever those may be. Jesus invites us to experience his compassion, his power to heal, to forgive, to liberate us from whatever imprisons us imprisons us. When we see Jesus, we see someone who is approachable and understanding. And for as long as humanity has wrestled with the reality of God, we've tried to figure out who God is and what is his nature, and Jesus makes that clear. Here we realize that the beauty of Jesus is that he sheds, he sheds light on the mystery of God. Forever, in all of human history, we've tried to answer the question of who is God and what is his nature. Can we know him and can we be intimate? And the beauty of the life of Jesus is that he sheds light to that, ministry, that mystery. Jesus makes it possible for us to see God and understand God and experience God. Jesus makes knowing God possible. Jesus makes God approachable. Jesus makes relationship with God possible. Jesus shows us that God is loving and compassionate and caring and forgiving. 
and that he's a father. This is why Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, of his nature sustaining all things by his power. This is why Jesus, when asked by Philip, in John chapter 14, verse 8, Jesus responds after Philip says, yo, show me the Father. And Jesus says, have you been, uh, have I been among you all this time and yet you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. Y'all heard me preach this story here a few, uh, uh, last month, I believe it was. Luke chapter 15, the story of the Father and the two sons. And in verse 20, there's something interesting that happens that sheds light even more on the nature of God as father. So he got up and went to his father. This is the younger son. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. This was the expression of love and invitation of the father after the son who had dissed him went and came back. Dr. Rita Bennett who recently passed away and focuses on the relationship of the emotional health and the spiritual journey. She says something so beautiful in description of this moment between this father and this son. She says, this amazing person was a non-controlling parent. That is, one who allows his child to think, not to simply act mechanically. He permitted his son, who was of age, to try his wings and then allowed him to come home without laying a shame trip on him. This son had a safe place to fail, to fall, and to get up again. In such a healing atmosphere, the son would feel secure enough to try again and again, each time with more wisdom than before. Here's the kicker. Until one day he would become the same kind of person as his father was. Ah, I read this quote. I've been sitting on this quote for many years because it comes from a book that she has called The Lord Prayers. The Lord's Prayer heals. And man, I am so deeply moved by this idea that God would be so kind to us, so patient to us, with us, so inviting to us. And, and he's kind of like in an in a, in a incognito kind of Jedi way, Dr. Strange way. He's being so patient with us and so kind and so loving in a way that when we experience it over and over and over again, he knows it's changing us. We don't even see it, and he knows it's changing us. That the space God creates for us, it's so deeply transformative. And this is why Jesus says, yo, your father and my father. This is why Paul revels at the idea of being adopted by God as our father. Because he knows what company with him will do to us. Here's some final thoughts as I close. That last phrase, in heaven, I won't say too much about it just because we're a little bit over time. But, you know, initially praying that my father is in heaven wasn't encouraging to me. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't encouraging at all when I first really started to reflect on this prayer. My father in heaven was not encouraging. I thought to myself, why is he there in heaven and not here with me? <laughs> and then it... <clears throat> Set me down a course to challenge the perception that I have of heaven and where it is. Really challenged me to think a little more deeply about heaven and where it is. Heaven is both over there 
but also among us. You see, like the kingdom in Scripture, the kingdom of heaven is often spoken of synonymously as the kingdom of God. If heaven is here, so is home, and so is our Father. Now, I all know, and we all know, excuse me, that we're working towards uh, a heaven, a paradise, a kingdom where God's presence is fully revealed to us. That as Revelation talks, it will be a world where there are no more tears and no more death and no more darkness. Where the light of the very presence of God will be the light of the city. <clears throat> but I also understand from the story of scripture and from what Jesus invites us to see is that the kingdom and heaven and the very presence of God is also here. But faith is the avenue by which we can experience now. Experience that now. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Do we have that on the screen? It says this. It says, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you. The hope of glory. That Christ, his intimacy and the confidence that we can have and the love that we can exist with lives and presides within us through faith because of what Christ has done. That we can experience the power, the intimacy, and the depth of being in relationship with God as if in the kingdom here and now. Who can disturb the king in the middle of the night for a glass of water? His own child. We are those children. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for the work that you have done to bring us into this family. God, I do pray that we can know deeply, not only in our hearts but in our bones, in such a way that it would affect the way that we think, see the world, and engage with one another, God, that we are your children. That while it is true that we exist with vast differences culturally, ethnically, socioeconomically, God, that you have invited us to be your children. And that impacts and changes the way that we live with one another and in this world. Holy Spirit, do the work of settling that truth into our bones. Thank you for intimacy. Thank you for your company, your presence, God. Help us to grow more aware of it with each passing day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.